Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, if you would please. Uh, It's a pleasure to be able to come back to the book of Revelation once again tonight as we look into the scriptures and discover some of the mind-boggling ways that God is going to bring this world to a close. And these messages, I've told you before that I'm always searching for the right kinds of adjectives to use, and they get overused sometimes, uh, trying to think about how amazing that this is going to be Uh, the time that uh, when Christ comes and all the things that begin to happen after that. And I believe that we're in one of the most interesting chapters in the book of Revelation. And usually when you study Revelation, this is one of the chapters where you get most of the questions. Uh, People want to know about the Antichrist. And uh, lots of times people ask me, do you have any insight into who might be the Antichrist? And uh, as I've told many of you beyond Obama, I'm not quite sure. But uh, down through history, there have been many names that have been proposed, and depending upon your scheme of interpretation, that might run from anyone in the popes of Rome all the way to someone who may have died and then is resurrected, Uh, just all kinds of different ideas. But there's a lot of attention paid to the Antichrist, and naturally they should be. And with all of that attention, this other person that we find in chapter 13, this one we're introduced uh, also to in this chapter, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, He's secondary to the Antichrist, but we notice as we read the Scriptures tonight, which we'll do in just a few moments, that the Bible says that he exercises all of the power of the Antichrist. He is actually integral to the Antichrist's success because he plays a part where uh, he helps to consolidate the stranglehold that the Antichrist has on all the governments of the world and all the people of the world. This man is known as the false prophet. And you can put the article THE in capital letters in front of his name because he is THE false prophet, meaning he is the acme of religious deceit. In the title of the messages, I've called him the subtle seer, and that's because he is so sophisticated and he's so convincing. Uh, He's able to sway the emotions of men and push all of the right buttons to cause them to change from their long-held religious traditions into an old worship in a new form. And I've called this an old worship in a new form because the one that people worship in false religion has always been the same, and that's been Satan. He's the one master of all false religions, and as diverse as they may be, it all falls back on his shoulders. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and there you find the beginnings of false religion. It changes from time to time in its form, but essentially it is exactly the same, following the very same leader. And so when this false prophet comes on the scene, he does what no one is able to do before, and that is he unites all of the diversity of religion into one world religion, following one God, and that God is the Antichrist. Now, we're going to read some uh, about him tonight. Revelation 13, 11 through 18 gives us the first view in the book of Revelation and the power that this uh, particular person possesses. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, and we'll start reading at verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. 
And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word again tonight. Lord, as we look into these scriptures, I just pray that you uh, might use the message tonight to help us to understand a little bit more of your word in these times that are coming. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and because of him, those of us who know him as Savior will not have to go through any of these terrible times that are coming. So bless, Lord, as we give the message tonight, and we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, I need to review just a little bit of information before we uh, go on tonight in the second part of this message. Let's, let's talk about a, a couple of things that we were discussing in the first message concerning the false prophet. The first thing that we talked about is that he is a false messiah. We notice here that he is the beast that comes out of the earth, and I believe that that is an indication that this is a man who comes from Israel. I believe that the Antichrist is most likely a Gentile. And in the beginning of the chapter 13, he is seen as a beast that rises up out of the sea. And I think that the sea there stands for the turbulent sea of humanity. And I believe that most likely he is a man that comes from one of the countries that surrounds the Mediterranean. But the second beast, there is a distinction made with him because it says that he is one who comes up from the earth or out of the land. Uh, Like the Antichrist, uh, he's an imitator. And he comes out of the land of Israel, which I believe means that most likely he is a Jew. He's mimicking the true Christ, and so he comes up out of Israel. And I think that that's very important because the Jews today are still looking for a Messiah. And in order to unite the world religiously, uh, it would be necessary for this man to uh, come from Israel because the Jews, as we know, have always believed and rightly believed that the Messiah would be Jewish. Now, of course, they miss the fact that he's already come, but certainly Christ was Jewish. Well, we might think that that would pose a problem for uh, uniting other religions of the world, such as the Muslims, because this man is a Jew. But we really ought not to think that that'd be too much of a problem, because Muslims already accept Jesus as a great prophet, and so the fact that this man is a Jew really wouldn't seriously hinder his acceptance by the Muslims. 
And then uh, Gentile religions around the world, they also have no problem with this because they as well have admitted, even though they may not think that Jesus was the Son of God, yet they admit that he had unique character and certain abilities that he had that were uncommon to other men. And so the fact that this man would be a Jew who mimics Christ would not be a serious uh, hindrance to the work of the Antichrist. So consolidating religious power, that is a very important piece for the Antichrist's success. And that's because as long as there is diversity of religion, then the world will also be in division. And one thing that the Antichrist can't afford is that there would be division of any kind. Uh, There's nothing that will help him to bridge ethnic divides when he tries to uh, unite world governments than to uh, unite religions of the world. I mean, it's possible to blur political lines if you can bridge that gap that is between religions. And that is the work of the false prophet. He has to break down all of these many different religions in the world, and he must restructure man's inherent desire to worship a god into a desire to know the very same god. And that God will be the man known as the Antichrist. So the false, false prophet then is a false messiah. And he's one that gives religious hope to people and unites them into a common cause. Then secondly, we discussed his false mannerisms. In verse number 11, uh, we have some remarkable things here because uh, he's described as a lamb. And, of course, as an imitator, he would be mimicking Jesus Christ in this because Jesus was known as the Lamb. Uh, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so when the false Messiah comes, he'll have the meekness of a lamb. And these little horns that are on his head speak of power, but it means power in a very subtle and deceptive way. And that's one of the ways that a false prophet works. There are many false preachers that are very kind and gentle, and they come in unobtrusive packages. They speak softly. They grin widely. They look very nice, but they're very adept at masking their true intent. They look helpful, but every time that a false prophet opens his mouth, hell is speaking. And when a false prophet comes, he doesn't come usually mocking Christ. He comes claiming to speak for him. And what false prophets do is they mix in just enough of the truth to make the lie seem plausible. And so you have millions of people in America and people around the world that are duped by all of these smooth-talking preachers. And while they smile at you, they can very quickly fleece you out of every dollar that you have. And so the mannerisms of the subtle seer are not really a tip-off to his true intent. He's very convincing and he's reasonable. The powers of deception are remarkable in this person. And we'll see it just a little bit later as we read verses or talk about verses 13 through 15. Now, as we discussed the mannerisms of this man in the last message, I explained the harshness and the meanness of his lies. Now, many people think that what you believe really doesn't matter. Just as long as you're sincere about something and you have some kind of a value system that you adhere to, uh, as long as you can call yourself a spiritual person, then that's all right. Well, we can say about Satan that he is definitely a spiritual person. And believing his lies uh, can make a huge difference in your life. Uh, If you believe his lies, they're lies that can send you to hell. It's the difference in heaven and hell when you believe what a false teacher is preaching when he's speaking the lies of Satan. And so a false teacher can affect a person's eternal destiny. 
Some people think that, that I'm just way too harsh whenever I speak about or expose the lies of false Christianity. And you may think that I'm hard, too hard on the Pope or too hard on Osteen or on Rick Warren or some of the other religious hucksters that are out there, but I can't help or can't afford to be nice about these things. We can't shut our mouths about it because what you believe very seriously does matter. And it matters so much that when the apostles spoke about false teachers, they said that they're to be cursed for the damnable lies that they tell. And so you have these false prophets who the end times are nothing but, is nothing but, uh, this false prophet is nothing but an extension of all the false prophets that have come before him. He's not different from them at all, except that he's much better at what he does. He's perfected the art of deception And with the restraining power of the Holy Spirit largely removed from the world and God's determination that he's going to let people believe the lie, it's going to be hard to stop these people from falling for the false prophet and following the Antichrist like rats that are following the Pied Piper. Well, we need to move on a little bit. I want to cover some new territory tonight. So we're going to look at then the third aspect of the subtle seer, and this is his false miracles. And perhaps miracles or false miracles is not the way to describe them because I think that they are indeed miracles. It's just that they come from a false source and they bring an enticing false hope to people who believe them. Uh, The lie is that if you will swear or people will swear allegiance to the Antichrist and bow down to him, that there will be a reward of victory. And that victory will come over God's people and over God himself. But there is no victory like that exists. And Just like those rats who were drowned in the river by the Pied Piper, these rats are going to follow him all the way into the lake of fire, and they're going to be drowned there. But we notice the uncanny ability that he has. If you look at verse number 13, it says, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he calls down fire from heaven. Now, is that not an imitation? You look in the scriptures and see the numbers of times that that fire has been used, uh, fire from God and in connection with miracles. Elijah, of course, is one of the most famous examples in the Bible where he called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, and there he defeated the prophets of Baal. Uh, Before that, much earlier, uh, there was a plague of fire that came upon the Egyptians that God sent during that time. And then if you go back to chapter 8 in Revelation, you find that the very first trumpet judgment was a plague of fire. One-third of all the green living things on the earth was burned up. And then you get into chapter 11, and there you find the two witnesses of God who protected themselves by being able to use fire. Now, if you look at all that and see all the fire that's going on in the time of the tribulation, well, you think, well, these people uh, must have their fill of fire by now. But I suppose it's necessary for the false prophet and the Antichrist, if they're going to mimic Christ and uh, show that they or pretend that they have the power of God, that they would also show that they have control over fire. And so, indeed, they do. Now, the main point, though, that I want to make out of all of that is that miracles are convincing. People are taken in by religious miracles. And in the original language here, the word wonders uh, is an indication of religious miracles. Remember Moses when he confronted uh, Pharaoh's prophets, that there were two magicians that Pharaoh had that were able to mimic the religious signs that Moses showed them. Uh, Those two men were Janus and Jambres. 
Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, and we know the story how it became a serpent. And Janus and Jambres, those false prophets of Pharaoh, were able to do the very same. They had the power to mimic God. Now, Satan knows that miracles are convincing. And so what do you have prevalent among false religions? Well, you have miracles. Now, some people will say, well, you must be talking about what heathens do, and you must be talking about false mysticism and voodoo and things like that. Not really, because just take a look at false Christianity. It's really big on miracles. For instance, what does Catholicism use? What's the most famous site for pilgrimage for Roman Catholics in the world? Well, it's a place called Lourdes in France where supposedly the Virgin Mary appeared in 1858 and there uh, there's a stream that flows through the city and they claim that that stream has healing properties because the Virgin Mary appeared there. So they have their miracles. They have their crying statues and they have their bleeding statues. And perhaps the greatest miracle of all that the Roman Catholic Church claims is that all across the world in thousands of churches, every time that they say a Mass, there is a priest who stands up and says his little bit of hocus-pocus over the, the bread and the wine and supposedly turns those into the blood and the, and the body of Jesus Christ. And there are people... Roman Catholics who have believed that miracle so strongly and believe that it really does happen that there are actual accounts of people that would take that, that, that wafer that they think has been changed into human flesh and they would actually vomit it back up because they so strongly believe that they were eating human flesh and they believe that the priest was drinking human or divine blood. So religious miracles are very powerful. People are easily convinced by miracles. And I spoke of voodoo just a moment ago, and and that's one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church has also embraced uh, in in countries like Haiti. And we just talked about uh, Brother Hoot down in the Dominican Republic, and right there on the other half of the island in Haiti, uh, they practice voodoo, and the Roman Catholic Church is involved in that. In New Orleans, they do the very same thing. But not to be outdone by Catholicism, evangelicalism has also embraced miracles. You find that... There are many people that are drawn in by all these supposed charismatic gifts, uh, faith healers and all of that. Uh, Satan has uh, been behind the, the tongues movement, and he's saturated the world with a false brand of Christianity. I spoke with some missionaries to Brazil a few years ago, and they were telling me that, you know, at one time they really had to... to fight against Roman Catholicism was very difficult for the gospel to get a hold in countries like Brazil because of the influence of Catholicism. But they say that that's no longer the case. The one that causes, the, or the religion that causes them the biggest problem is the charismatic movement and people who get involved in that. And you'll notice that the underlying doctrine of the charismatic movement, if you really get down to it, is really not very far from that of Catholicism. Catholicism is rife with Arminianism and Pelagianism, and so is the doctrine of charismatics. Arminianism is the heart and core of of the doctrine of Roman Catholics and, and, and also of charismatics. And very little by little, that keeps creeping even into our Baptist churches. So it's really not hard at all to see how a false prophet can draw people in. The infrastructure for a complete takeover of religion is already in place, Christianity has de-emphasized the the, uh, need for biblical truth. 
Inerrancy of Scripture is no longer taught in churches, and you can go to any number of churches, probably the majority of them, in Sonoma County today, and you'll find that the pastors stand up in pulpits and never even bother to open up the Word of God to read from it. And when there is no true biblical preaching, and somebody comes along with a religious miracle, people join in like lemmings, and they follow it, and they'll march right off the cliff to their destruction. And so if you wonder why I mention names and why I mention false churches to warn you about them, here's the reason. Uh, how could I possibly do less? I mean, just, uh, just, what is it, a couple of years ago, we had a man uh, who was uh, a Mormon running for president under the banner of the Republican Party, and they said that that man was a Christian. And how can I do less when our government is telling us uh, and politicians are, are telling us that we need to downplay the influx of Muslims into our society because it's really okay. Uh, Islam is nothing more than just a peaceful religion. But you take a look at their greatest prophet, Muhammad, and then tell me that he was all about peace, love, and harmony. Not on your life, folks. I mean, you just take a look at what the world would be like if Islam had prevailed in the... In the uh, during the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation, if they had been able to conquer the world, we'd all be living like they are in Afghanistan and Iran and other places of the world. So the gospel is not going to be preached and tolerated under those kinds of governments. And that is right where the Antichrist is going with this. He and the false prophet desire to go there. They dupe the world, and they're going to establish a religion that is not tolerant of anything except those who will fall down and worship the beast. And as I mentioned in a message, I think, a few weeks ago, America is already on the path to make that happen. When you have 59% of Americans today who believe that all religions are valid and that there are other paths to God, they are already, we're already preparing for this great delusion. All of the pieces of the infrastructure are already being, being put into place for the worship of the Antichrist. Well, what does that mean to us? Well, we're Christians, and... So we don't advocate killing people in order to rid the world of infidels. There's only one way that you can rid the world of infidels, and that's to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of lying down and surrendering our churches and letting the devil take them over, we've got to start and continue to preach the gospel. And we've got to quit compromising everything to try and draw people in so that we can have a crowd. I mean, compromise is not going to help us. Vast numbers of unsaved, purpose-driven people in the church are not going to do us any good. Now, Satan is very purpose-driven, and so is the Antichrist and the false prophet. So I'll tell you what we as Baptists need to do. We need to climb out of the political process, and we need to get back into the preaching process. Now, one of the things that happened to us many years ago is the moral majority was all the time trying to get its foot in the front door of the government. And while they were busy doing that, Satan was walking in the back door of the churches. And so now we've got this huge problem of trying to get rid of Satan that we never even had before like we have it now. He's infiltrated all of our churches, it seems like. And we thought that we were doing the right thing by trying to influence legislation and influence the government with all kinds of Christian principles. And we haven't learned that you can't change the world by anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we'd better be busy preaching that instead of doing other things. 
Now, my purpose tonight really was not to go into a diatribe about all those kinds of things. But this mixture of religion and politics is exactly what Satan is after. That's what the Antichrist and the, and the subtle seer are going to try to convince people about. And it's what they've been trying to do for centuries. They've always wanted governmental power to be mixed with ecclesiastical power. And that's one thing that Roman Catholicism has tried to do in its whole history. When you go back and you look at Constantine in the 4th century, and what do you have? He's called the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. And how did he get that way? Well, he saw a way that he can combine Christianity uh, with, with the government in order to increase his power. And apostate churches at that time were more than willing to go along with him. And if that meant that they had to surrender uh, to, to paganism and to mix in some pagan doctrines with what few little bits of Christianity they had, that was okay. And so thus you have the birth of Roman Catholicism. You don't blame Peter for it. It was three centuries after Peter. He didn't have anything to do with it. Now, this is a very remarkable thing, because when we talk about this coming world empire, I think the scriptures are teaching us that this is a revived Roman empire. And what does it do to solidify its power? It gets all of the religions of the world together, and you know who's leading the pack? Apostate Christianity. They're the ones that are leading this this pack to get everybody together together. And so it's no wonder that the prevailing opinion of people, true people of God, about the 17th chapter of Revelation, when it talks about mystery Babylon the Great, that it's identified chiefly with Roman Catholicism. Now, if you think I'm hard on Catholicism now, you just wait until we get to those chapters. But this is the grand plan of all religious miracles. The objective is to prey upon man's age-old penchant to believe in miracles. And truthfully... God knows that as well. And that's why when the Apostle John wrote his gospel, what's one of the things he said? You're familiar with it. He said, I've recorded all these things, all these miracles that Jesus did to show you that Christ truly is the Son of God and he's the Savior of the world. Well, Satan knows that. And so if he can use miracles to try to mimic the things of Christ and to make the Antichrist or the false prophet appear to be Christ, then that's exactly what he'll do. So the false prophet comes along and he mimics the miracles in order to be convincing. Now the terrible tragedy of all that, of course, is that none of it's helpful. It might appear to be helpful at first. It looks like it's doing some good, but it's deception. False prophet can't do what Christ can do. He can't change a hell-bound sinner into a heaven-bound saint. Satan is one who preys on the corrupted heart of man and increases his wickedness. Well, Christ is the only one who can change a heart of unbelief and therefore manifest his own holiness. Now, let's look at the next verse and let's see what he does. Verse number 14. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and do live. Now, here we see the image for worship. Now, in this false religion of the beast, the very first major act of defiance is to attack the Ten Commandments. Now, we go back and we read in Exodus chapter 20, and the first commandments that God gives, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now there you see, first up on the list, no other gods, no images. Don't worship anyone else as God. You dare not make an image of God, a a likeness of anything in the heavens or in the earth beneath or anything in the water that's under the earth. Now, wouldn't you know it? The false prophet goes right for the juggler at the very beginning. What is the quickest route to destroy true worship? There's no doubt about it. It is idolatry. You break that commandment and get people doing this and the war is almost over. Now, constantly, God was warning Israel about idols. He told Moses that when they went in to possess Canaan, to get rid of all the people that were worshiping idols. And he said, if you don't do it, it's not going to be very long before you're going to be worshiping idols yourself. And that is exactly what they did. Idols was always a snare to entrap Israel. So Satan was always bombarding them with the temptation to worship all these different idols. Even King Solomon, the one who built that magnificent temple for God in Jerusalem, it wasn't long before his heart was turned away by all the foreign wives that he, he had married, and he was turned away from the worship of true Jehovah God, and he allowed them to have their groves up on the hills, and there they would enter into idol worship. And you can stand on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem and look across the Kidron Valley to the hills and you can still see the groves that were up there where they worshipped those idols. Both the kings of Judah and of Israel were tempted with idol worship. And eventually what God did was he allowed the ten northern tribes of Israel to be carried away into captivity by Assyria. And then the southern two tribes of, uh, of uh, Judah, they were carried away as well by Babylon. And so the snare of God's people has always been this issue of idolatry. And that's why God put that first in his list of commands. But we look down through history and it's always been a problem. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to go there right now, but I think you're familiar with it. In verse number 23, he talks about how the heathen changes the worship of the incorruptible God into corruptible things like uh, uh, corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And in verse number 25, he says they worship the creature instead of the creator. And so the false prophet is up to the very same thing. He corrupts by setting up an image of this antichrist, of the beast, in order for people to worship. Now, you remember this, how we talked about that the Antichrist kingdom is going to be made up of six former world empires. Those are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And all of those empires were characterized by idol worship. And particularly, and not coincidentally, the one that overcame Judah was the, was the uh, government uh, of, uh, of Babylon. And one of the acts that they did when they got Israel into Babylon, into captivity, was they made this huge statue of the emperor and demanded that everybody bow down to it. Well, that was the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we're going to turn over to Daniel chapter 3, if you would, and we're going to read about this. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, and it's really astonishing how things that you read in Daniel are parallels to things that are said in Revelation. And of course, as we've discussed before, we get much of our information about what happens in these end times out of the book of Daniel. But if you look at Daniel chapter 3, I want to start reading here at verse number 1, where it talks about this image that was set up of the emperor. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height 
was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king uh, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together under the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, uh, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, harp, sackbuck, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now there you see there is a command. Everyone in the kingdom of Babylon should fall down and worship this image. Nine stories high and nine feet wide. Sounds more like a cell phone tower than an image, but that, it's nine, feet, nine stories high, nine feet wide. Very tall and skinny image. Now, if they didn't fall down and worship that, then the ones who didn't were to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And if you read a little bit further in the same chapter, you've got that famous story of the three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that wouldn't bow down. And so that's what happened to them. They were thrown into the furnace. And, of course, miraculously, they were delivered by the Son of God. Now, we look at this, and we think, well, how could such things like this happen today? Nobody's going to be fooled into worshiping idols. This is all past stuff. We're just way too sophisticated to do things like this today. You know, that kind of drives me crazy when I hear people say that because you can drive just a couple, three blocks over here on Snyder Lane and you're going to find people bowing down to idols every single week and they can't even walk past them without bowing down and crossing themselves. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to to be in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome And the magnificence of that place is simply breathtaking. But you go through there, and what do you see? Idol after idol after idol after idol. High up on the walls, you find all of these different idols. There's a statue of Peter there that people come around, and they rub the toe to get a blessing. And it's been rubbed down to where you have nothing more a sliver there anymore, as people, so many people have filed filed by to rub that statue and to get a blessing. So people bow down to these idols, idols of the popes and idols of the saints. People bow down and pray to them. What is it? Well, I said they're idols, so it's idolatry. And it's exactly what we have right here described in the law that God gave. He said, you're not supposed to do this. Never do this. And this is what the false prophet is going to lead people into. It's idolatry. And this alliance that he has with the church of Rome is the very center of it. I mean, why should that surprise us at all? I mean, Rome has always been wrapped up in idols. And so we think, well, nobody's going to bow down and worship this image that's made by a false prophet. But notice what this image does. In verse number 15, it says the image can speak. Now, I don't know how that's done. Uh, There 
are some who say that it's mechanical and that it's trickery. And then there are others who are just as adamant who say that the image comes to life and it speaks. Now, I don't think it's talking about biological life because Satan doesn't have the power to do that. But some way he animates this idol so that it speaks. Now, you tell me what would happen if you went over to Snyder Lane to the Catholic Church and all of a sudden all of the statues start speaking. I mean, there are people that bow down to them when they can't speak, when they are what the Word of God says, dumb idols that can't speak. And yet there are people that make a trip over there every week to bow down to them. So what's going to happen if all of a sudden all the idols start jabbering and they start all these incantations, Holy Mother Mary of God, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you think that people from all over Rona Park are going to flock over there to see what's going on? Well, sure they will. I don't know, maybe some of you. You'd jump over everybody else to get your miracle too. You just never know. So you take these kinds of powers of deception that this man has, and you take all these signs and wonders that he does, and you couple that with God's determination that he's going to withdraw the Holy Spirit, and you take the chaos, and you take the economic woes, and you take all of this stuff that people are going through because of the tribulation, and you combine all of that, mix it all together, and you have people that are looking for hope, and they have no way out, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to flock to the image of the beast. And they will bow down before it, and they will worship it. I mean, it's not too hard to believe when you have people right now looking for some kind of a miracle all of the time, and they turn to religion to find it. And so here you have a man with religion. Man is naturally religious. And whether that religion runs to some strange god that he worships or even to humanism alone, this fits the bill. This is what people want. It's their longing. Now, next time that we talk about this, I'm going to come back and I've got some more things that I want to say about images and whether we are supposed to make these kinds of likenesses of anything today. But I want to kind of wind things up right now by looking to uh, looking once again at the parallel of this image of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse number 6 in Daniel chapter 3 says, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, Satan has not changed very much over the course of all the centuries. Our text verse over in Revelation 13 says, and as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And so here we have then the injunction of wrath. Why is it that the Antichrist will hold so much sway over the world? Well, the deception's there, that's for sure. And there are many willing partners that enter into his deception. But I suppose that there will be some people that are skeptical, and generally they might be for the program, but they haven't yet thrown all in just yet. And so the worship of the beast is that final stroke to make sure that they all fall in. What the Antichrist needs is a a unified front, and, and one of the most important points of his program is either that you are with him or else. Now you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want any division in his kingdom. Because he knew this, dissent means factions. And even Satan knows this. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so Nebuchadnezzar's simple solution to the problem was just kill anybody who doesn't fall down and worship the image. And the Antichrist is no different. Everybody will throw in or they'll be thrown out. Now we notice that he solidifies all this in verses 16 and 17. And we're going to get to this uh, uh, next time that we talk about this subject. This number, 666, either you have it 
or you wish for sure that you did. Now, the Word of God tells us that there are no believers in Christ that are going to receive this mark of the beast. And so, folks, there is going to be a genocide that will make Hitler look like a schoolboy. It's going to be a terrible time. Well, I don't want to end everything on an ominous note tonight. And so I do want to tell you that there is hope. Uh, There is a way out of this. There is relief from it. And the relief is if you simply put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust him. And if you have your faith in Christ, then everything that we're talking about here is an academic exercise for you. I mean, this is informational purposes only because you don't have to go through this. Instead, when Christ comes again, those who are his people will watch it all play out from the peace, the safety, and comfort of heaven. The question is, where would you rather be? And the answer to that question is very important. Where would you rather be? And if you want to be with the Lord, then you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. That is an imperative. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for time we've spent together tonight. And as we look into your word, once again, I I, I do want to say how much we thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have a great plan for taking this world back, reclaiming it, purging it of the curse, making it new again. And however you choose to do that, we know that it's holy and righteous and good. And I just pray, Lord, that everyone here tonight might know you as Savior. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when this is going to take place. For all that we know, Jesus could come back tonight. Help us to be looking for that, and then that people would understand that they must have their faith in you, and without that, they will go through these terrible times of tribulation. So, Lord, we just pray that you would bless and uh, be with us and help us, Lord, to serve you better every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.